What a blessing it is to sing the praise of God and to open his word among God's people. Uh, in the age of the Holy Spirit, aren't you glad the Holy Spirit came and that Pastor Ann told us all about that? Aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and so what a blessing. What a blessing. Well, we are beginning a new series. And you know, I get a little bit excited when we start a new series. And our series, uh, I've, I've called Major Truth, Minor Prophets. You might have figured that out by some of the things that are around me. And uh, the, the title for uh, this weekend is A Tale of Two Kingdoms. If you don't have some paper notes, you can get some in the lobby or in the back. We'll make sure that you have that. This is a different sort of study. In the summer, I try to do something a little different. Usually, we go through a whole book and, and uh, take some time on it. I call it sort of a worm's eye view, uh, where we're looking really close, sometimes really, really close at, at the verses as we go through. This is going to be what I call a bird's eye view. We're flying over 12 books of the Bible, and we're going to be doing that over the next 12 weeks with a couple of breaks along the way. Uh, so uh, I want to just give you some introduction on this weekend as we get started. So who are these minor prophets? Uh, you know, they have these difficult to, uh, to pronounce names. You can, you can see them up here. And, and it's that part of the Bible, I'll tell you, where when you come to it, you realize, I'm really close to the New Testament. I, I think I could just, you know, flip on ahead. Some of them are short, really short, and some of them are longer. Uh, but these are the minor prophets. And uh, I hope you're, you're excited about it. Do you understand you don't have to be a Bible geek? To love the minor prophets. Say amen. All right. So what, what do we mean when we say um, major and minor? I mean, is it like baseball? Uh, is there a major league in the world of prophecy and then a minor league? And are, are the minor guys waiting to be called up to the major league and really make the big bucks? Is that what it's about? I, I thought I'd throw a little, it's summertime, a little baseball joke humor in there. Okay. But... Uh, as we look at it, I, I want to explain some of that. The minor prophets um, are those who were prophesying during the divided, a time we call the divided kingdom. Actually, all of the prophets prophesied during this time of divided kingdom. So if you can imagine, can you imagine a nation that's very divided? If you can imagine, okay, just, I know it's difficult sometimes, but... Uh, and they were uh, some of the most tumultuous times uh, in the history of Israel, uh, this time of that I'm going to call divided kingdom. There's 17 of them, and they're up there, and we'll be looking at them. Um, there are five that we call major prophets, and that's not in your heading usually. It might be somewhere in some notes or commentary that you have. And they're called that really just because they're longer and they're broader in their scope and uh, some only list four. Uh, Lamentations is sometimes included in what we call the writings. Uh, but uh, Isaiah, oh, yeah, we know that. Je Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these are, these are sort of the big league guys that we're more familiar with. The 12 minor prophets are called minor uh, because they're mainly just because they're shorter and they're more focused. And uh, so you can see the list there. We're, that's where we're going to be is in these 12 minor prophets because a lot of times the others get a, a fair amount of attention. So let's back up 
and let's do a little bit of Old Testament 101 and try to understand what is going on. What do you mean divided kingdom and all this sort of thing? So the history of Israel as a nation begins in about 2000 BC. And it begins with uh, two people named Abram and Sarai, who later are called Abraham and Sarah. And that's because once they know God, he changes their name. He says, you've got the breath of God in you. And that's where that comes from, that change takes place. And so those are the, the three, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Abraham is first, and then his son Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons uh, who are going to become the 12 tribes of Judah, or the 12 tribes of Israel. And you remember this story of how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They had a little bit of sibling rivalry. And actually, that's a lot of what's going on in this part of the Bible, is this rivalry that goes on. He's sold into slavery, and God says, that's not a problem for me. He raises him to the second highest place of power in all of Egypt, and he saves his family because of that. He saved them from starvation, and he moved them to the land of Goshen. Now, if you sometimes see on TV, they talk about the Giza sheets. That's Goshen. I don't know if you know that. But when you see Giza sheets, he's talking about cotton that's grown in Goshen. It was a super rich place in terms of the soil and in terms of the agriculture. So uh, they are there and uh, they begin to grow as a nation. 400 years later, the Hebrews had grown to about 2 million people. We're, we're moving fast through history. And uh, Pharaoh was afraid of that. And so he enslaved them and he began to use them for labor and all kinds of things. And then, of course, uh, the people cry out to God, and God hears that cry and raises up Moses. That's the period of the Exodus. The Exodus is when Moses leads them out of bondage and into the promised land. There's a lot that happens in there. And uh, God gives them the law as, a, as covenant. He gives them a covenant a significance, uh, and he guides them both in faith and in government. It's Joshua who finally leads them into the land. So they wander for 40 years. That's a big, long story for, for another series. Uh, but Joshua leads them into the land, and Israel uh, is established in the land of Canaan or Canaan. And there really wasn't, there were some uh, pagan people there, but there wasn't any nation that was there. And that's the settling of uh, the land that is in such dispute these days. It was first settled uh, at God's leading there uh, in Israel. And Israel as a nation was first of all a, a loose confederation of tribes and literally it was one nation under God. That's what they were. I mean, you say, well, where did that come from? I, I don't know that that's where it came from, but it, that is what they were. And they begin the period that we call the Judges. We studied that a couple of years ago. The period of the Judges is uh, about 130 years long, uh, from uh, 1150 to, to 1020. And uh, what happened then was whenever a crisis occurred, whenever there was a threat, God raised up a leader called a judge. Now, they weren't judges like we think of for the most part. There was a couple of them that judged but most of all, they were, they were leaders. Gideon was a warrior leader. 
And Samson was a, a warrior leader. Deborah was a general. So we have these uh, leaders that are raised up. Othniel, it's a, it's a great study uh, in, the, in, the book, uh, in those books as we go on through and in the book of Judges. Uh, but they were for a specific need. It was a kind of peculiar way of government, if you think about it, because no one person was in charge. No one family was in charge. Uh, there wasn't a monarchy being passed down. Uh, and they just sought to follow God. And God was, if you said, who is your king? They would say, God is our king. And, uh, and Samuel was a priest and a judge. And he was one of the last great leaders among the judges. And we come to this time in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's our scripture for tonight and for this weekend. Is uh, The people began to cry out and say, we like a king. We just want a king like the other nations have. We want to be like those other folks that have kings. And that's where we are. So let's give our attention to God's word. 1 Samuel 8, uh, verse, it's the whole chapter. So let's give our full attention to God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. And the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants 
He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now let's stand and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a word that speaks into our hearts and into our times and speaks across pages of your Bible. And God, we pray that you would speak to us specifically in the things that we need to hear in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a famous book uh, that's called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. You may have heard of it by Edward Gibbon. It's six volumes long. I have not read it, but I've read some of the synopsis of it. It's often lifted up uh, to talk about things we should watch out for. When you see this happening in a nation, when you see that happening in a nation, uh, you, you'll know that uh, decline is coming and it will foretell the fall of the nation. And I found myself asking, I was just really uh, praying over this series and these scriptures, and it just really occurred to me, this question, is America really a modern Roman empire? And I could, I could point out a lot of ways that that's not a good comparison. There's some similarities, very, very powerful, broad uh, strength and things like that, but there are also huge differences. Among them, we don't have a Caesar. And Caesar was actually worshipped in the time of Rome. Uh, and also they were polytheistic for, for most of their existence and uh, later adopted Christianity when they were actually already in decline. Um, so those are some of the differences that I immediately thought of. It occurred to me that we could gain much more uh, by thinking about the rise and the fall of the kingdoms of Israel and it's in this book that you, you have on your shelf and that you have in your hand and that we have very available to us. Israel was the first monotheistic nation of the ancient world. I haven't found any other. There are probably some historians who might know better, but it, it is an amazing thing that God did. And that is a picture of uh, what we call a united kingdom. That's in the time of Solomon which is at its greatest glory in terms of power and strength. But Israel rose to that strength through the power of Yahweh God. That's, that's how they got there. Life was organized around the law. 
uh, these ten utterances uh, that came from the one God. Israel uh, always found her strength and her dependence upon God. Uh, Israel had, had moved with a clear moral compass. Anytime they listened to God and God's word, they were moving in the right direction. And while there are some differences, I would suggest to you just bluntly that that's a, a better example of something we could compare to in terms of America. Where is America and what, what might we look for? Early on, Israel was guided and protected by undeniable strength and presence of God. In fact, everybody knew about it. There are a number of places in scripture where when they realize it's, it's the people of Israel coming, they say, oh no, their God is so powerful. We don't want to go up against them because we've heard these things and, and we know some of it the 10 plagues upon uh, the, the oppressors in Egypt, and, and Israel was shielded from that. The Hebrews were shielded from that. The Red Sea is parted, and the enemies are drowned behind her. Um, the central law was given in the desert, uh, and, and then when they would go out, they had the weirdest uh, methods of warfare. They would send out trumpet players, shofar players out at the front. What are you doing? And then they would have uh, the Ark of the Covenant. They would go out and they would win everything because it wasn't them winning. It was God. When they were depending upon God, there weren't any problems in, in, in terms of that. The biggest enemy uh, that Israel had all the way along was the temptation to go back to idolatry. I think I like those dolls. I think I like those you know, little statues. I like those little idols and things like that. So Israel came into, uh, I like to call it the land of promise, and, then, and they settled out. And God told them exactly, this is yours and this is yours, and here's how the different tribes should be settled there. This loose confederation, no strong central government, no strong uh, taxation, no, no strong army. And what they did was anytime there was a, a, a problem, an enemy or a battle, they just called everybody. Everybody come. And they did it in interesting ways. You know, one time, one of the judges, he sacrifices an ox and he sends, he cuts it all into pieces and sends a piece to every tribe. And he says, now you get over here uh, to defend the smallest one among us. And if you don't, this is going to be you. I mean, that was the, the, the uh, message and the implication. So the Lord would communicate, you know, these things that were going on and communicated through prophets like Samuel. And then we come to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the people demand, we want a king like the other nations. We want to be like the other nations. Why do you want to be like the rest when you have the best? It's a really good question, isn't it? Why do you want to be like the rest of the world? Samuel warned them. He said, they're going to, you get a king, the king's going to tax you and oppress you eventually. Even the most benevolent king eventually uh, is a dictator and and then in the next generation, uh, when power is passed on somehow, uh, they may not be as good as the one you thought was good. The next generation uh, can be really, really difficult and wicked. So in verse 18, uh, he says, in that day, you will cry out because of your king. <laughs> and he's probably talking about the era of Solomon, but he could have been talking about other eras and certainly some of the other eras uh, that came later on. 
And it's because we, we know this thing, that power corrupts. We always say power corrupts absolutely, and inherited power corrupts, and seized power is corrupt by its very definition. In the transition of, of power in those, in those kinds of monarchies, they don't go well. So in 1 Samuel 8, one of the interesting things is that it's the first place that I know of where we hear the voice of the people choosing government. I never noticed that before. Aren't you glad your pastor learns things? And in many ways, this is the beginning of what we now call democracy. And what do I mean by that? Democracy is a government in which power is vested in the people, either directly or by elected agents. I think we could easily call this a democratic moment where God says, listen to the people. The voice of the people is important. The choice of the people is significant. And they wanted, they said, we want a monarchy. We want a human king. That's what we want. And so this is the beginning of the era we call the United Kingdom of Israel. It's not the UK like we know it today, but it's the United Kingdom in about 1020 BC. It only lasted about 90 years. That's not very long, especially in the ancient world. There were only three kings. There was Saul, uh, who you probably remember, <laughs> and uh, we, we studied these. And Saul, we, we often say he was the king who had no heart for God. And then there was David, and David uh, had uh, a heart, a whole heart for God. We say he was a man after God's own heart. And then Solomon, who was a half heart for God, he really, he really wanted to serve God, but he was uh, tempted to do things his own way. And, and he made his alliances through marriages and inter intermarriage and things that messed things up. So after uh, the death of Solomon, the nation divided almost immediately. And uh, what we see happening is there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And you may know this, but you may have only heard about it, but it's really important. The northern kingdom is called Israel. That's the next slide. There we go. And uh, the 10 tribes in the north uh, were more the rural part of the nation. And they were the ones really resentful of Solomon because they were being taxed and burdened. And they didn't like the things that were going on in the urban center of the south. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And Judah uh, was made up of two tribes, just two, Judah and Benjamin. It's actually where we get the word Jew. When, when we say someone, uh, or a, when we talk about the Jews, they are essentially all descended uh, of Judah. And that, because that's all that really remained later on. Uh, the divided kingdom was weaker and less stable. Uh, each one had a king and they didn't have very good kings. They alternated between bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, not very often. And some of the kings were especially susceptible to idolatry. And we're going to talk about that in a, in a little bit further in this series. And, and some of the periods of rule were marked by these things, these uh, issues, injustice, idolatry, corruption, dishonesty, disaster, hopelessness. Really, the very same kinds of words and issues that we hear 
all the time right now. And that's why I think these books are really important for us to look at and to hear from. Well, this divided kingdom was weak and it did not last very long. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. You don't have to remember all these dates, but this is the flow of what happens. The northern tribes, the 10 tribes become what what we often call the 10 lost tribes because they were sent all out. That's what all those arrows are. They were sent out across and then they were resettled. And it is frankly a, a method of ethnic cleansing to force intermarriage with other captured people. They destroyed the identity of the people by bringing in others and then uh, forcing intermarriage. And these lost, these 10 lost tribes were scattered and they're not really lost because many still trace their heritage to those different names. The Southern Kingdom uh, fell in 586. So it wasn't very long after that, at least in ancient world times. And Jerusalem and the temple were totally destroyed. And most of the Jews were exiled to Babylon Uh, They weren't forced to intermarry, but they were actually allowed to live in their own communities. And that was a blessing. Uh, And they returned in 538, about 50 years later is when they returned. So a question, I mean, I find myself asking is, had God abandoned Israel? I mean, why did this happen? And I would say not at all, uh, because God works through all things. Have you heard that somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. God works through all things. And during the exile, Judaism shifted from a sacrificial focus to a word focus, to a Torah focus, and to gathering in the synagogues instead of having to have a temple. Temple was gone, and now they're meeting in different towns in these synagogues. And the commentaries of the rabbis, this is the beginning of rabbinical Judaism, the commentaries called Talmud and Mishnah, you've heard of those, uh, and those are the commentaries that developed uh, from the the rabbinical teachings. So why did the kingdom divide and collapse? I mean, what happened? And if you look anywhere, almost any historian or any writer will say, well, it was tribal discord and political unrest. And, uh, but I would say it in a more simple way. In a word, it's sin. And sin, uh, one of the things about sin is it brings division. It brings about division. Uh, Power and the quest for power are expressions of sin. And it all started uh, largely, I mean, there was a lot going on when the people said, uh, we we don't want you, God, to be our king. We want a human king, a human monarchy. And God says in verse seven, they have rejected me from being king over them. So when we talk sometimes and people debate and say, well, what's the big deal? You know, we don't have prayer in schools and we don't have this, we don't have that. This is the same thing. And I hope that we can see that and get a hold of that and, and grasp that. Division is a tool of the enemy. Jesus said it this way. He said, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. We know from the mouth of Jesus that the enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all. 
he wants to do. And division is one of his primary tools. The enemy is twice as effective if he can turn a people against themselves. I don't know if you noticed it, but last weekend when we were doing the Memorial Day observance and it was going through and it was listing how many people had given their lives in these different wars, you know, and it's like 4,000 here and it's 6,000 there. And then it came to the Civil War and they were listing about 450,000. I found another number in the range of 600,000. It's by far the most costly war in all of U.S. history. And that's because when a nation fights against itself, it loses, right? And so that's why the huge number of casualties. Now, what I want to suggest to you as we're kind of doing this backdrop here is that there are some parallels to consider when we think about Israel and when we think about the beginning of our nation. Uh, in 1776, there was a declaration and then a revolution. And it was gathered around uh, this thought, this idea that all men are created equal. Later would be women, but at that time, all men is the way they describe it. All men are created equal and are endowed by their creator <laughs> with inalienable rights or unalienable, whichever version you want to look at, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Very familiar words. And the framers declared that Americans as citizens had civil rights and civil liberties uh, under a bill of rights. Uh, and the framers dreamed of having a government of the people uh, that was, was not one with a king or single ruler, or single family that rules, no dictator. And, you know, I'm always struck when I study it because at the end of the Revolutionary War, many wanted to declare George Washington a king and not a president. And he said, no, that is not what we fought for. And he served two terms, and then he said, that's enough. That needs to be the end. America grew to greatness through the blessing and the providential watch of God. I, I so believe this, and I, I don't believe that this is any kind of a, a twisting or anything. Um, and I know some are trying to erase that idea, uh, e even now. And there is another piece of the puzzle, uh, the historical puzzle. These were sinful people. And they sought liberty to serve and worship God. And they dared to declare themselves to be one nation under God. That's what they, they were seeking uh, to be. But injustices lingered. You know, every time that I've been a part of 1776, the musical, the hardest part of it is that they battled and battled and fought to uh, get rid of slavery and just couldn't do it at that time. And they said, it's going to be something that haunts us. And they knew that, but there are a bunch of things, racism and slavery and sexism and child labor, just to name a few, those things would be grappled with over time. So in this, what, I, what many call American experiment, the one nation under God, who listens to what God wants? 
Pastor Ann did a, a great job uh, in, in the student message this weekend talking about how in Old Testament times it was either the prophet, the priest, or the king. And those were the ones that heard from God. And those were the ones that you listened to. And that's where you got your word of God, prophet, priest, or king. But in the, in the American experiment, it's not any of those. Uh, it's the people. It's the voice of the people. It's that, it's that voting booth that's, that's right there. How do we know and discern and then express what we hear from God? It's with a vote. That's why the integrity of the electoral system is so critical. It's not some casual thing at all. Uh, and how would they govern? The framers said, said there needs to be checks and balances. That's why we have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. And I know I'm not telling you things that you are not very, very aware of, but the balance of those so that no one is more powerful and overriding the other is critical. It's very, very important. And yes, that's messy. It's all probably always has been messy and it's always going to be messy, but it's better than having a king who just tells you this is the way it is. And, and Samuel gave us all of the reasons for that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the problem of division. Um, we seem to be in the most divided and divisive times that I remember since the 1960s. And, uh, and perhaps you would agree. I grew up in the 1960s. Some people are very fond of that decade. I'll be honest with you, I hated it. And it's because my dad was a World War II veteran and he saw the things going on. And he, it was not at all a good time in our, in our household and in our family because of that. It was very difficult. But we see so much division right now. Now more and more we're divided into red states and blue states. And I found myself wondering, when did that happen? And, actually, and, I, and I thought, I don't remember it being that way. And it wasn't. It had to do with color television. Did you know that? And they started saying, look, we can have these cool graphics. I think NBC was the first. And when they were covering elections, and then it really came in 2000, the election of 2000, the red states and the blue states, the red states and the blue states. And those are the division. And more and more, as I, as I have friends and as I hear things, it sounds like there's a lot more red and blue than that. I hear about churches that are red churches and blue churches. I don't think that makes Jesus happy at all. We're seeing more and more of that kind of division. And even in families, pushing away friends and family based on issues and economics and race and, and even views about medical care, all this separation. But the fundamental issues are not really new. And that's why we're gonna study these. Um, the enemy is the same and his strategy is the same. There's a quote uh, by John Adams that it's not my favorite. I, I kind of wince every time that I read it. But in 1780, John Adams, who, you know, I, I like him a lot, uh, wrote to, uh, in a letter to Jonathan Jackson. He said, there's nothing which I dread so much as a division of the Republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leader, and concerting measures in opposition to each other, this, in my humble apprehension, is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil 
under our Constitution. Wow, that was a long time ago. Now, I want to hopefully reassure you that my intention in this study is not political. Um, as you know, I seek for this to be a place where everyone can come. And I know people of very, very different political views who come and worship together here and who over the years have loved each other and cared for each other. So my intention is not to divide and my intention is not to be political. Um, in the weeks ahead, what I wanna do is look at what God has said about these issues, these same issues. Now, that can be a little scary because when you look at what God says, God may agree with your viewpoint or he might not. And then you have a, we have a, I have a decision to make about what I'm gonna do. But the marvelous thing about studying his word is we get truth. And I hope you will trust, I will be very, very careful to rightly divide the word of truth. I have sought to never go out and cherry pick the things to support. Hebrews four says it so well, for the word of God is living and active. Why don't we read it out loud together? For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If we wanna get through the emotional stuff of it and the things that maybe have been planted in us over the years and get to what God is interested in saying, we need to listen to his word. I found a, a, a meme this week that I posted and I really liked it. And it says simply this, it's hard to hear God's voice when you've already decided what you want him to say. And it really is. We, we wanna listen and say, God, I wanna hear what you want to say. So one of the questions of faith is this, how then shall we live? Because uh, one of the difficulties is, and if you're like me, I look and I say, I can't change that huge thing over there or this huge thing over here, but we can change right where we are. It starts with me, it starts in my family, your family, and in our family of faith. And that is to seek to live in unity as body of Christ, as a witness. There are probably a hundred verses that I could, start into right now about unity. Just one of them, 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So that is the beginning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these guys that it's difficult to pronounce their names, but they were faithful to you to bring what you, what you were telling to the people, what you were bringing to the people. And God, I pray that we might have ears and by your spirit that our hearts might hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and as we do so, we celebrate unity. <laughs> it's a marvelous thing about communion. It's, it's from the same word as community and it's a, a uniting. I'll bet that there are a lot of different views and different ideas right here in this room, uh, but it's a way of uniting around the gospel of Christ. betrayed he took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body given for you take eat do this in remembrance of supper in the same way he took the cup and he blessed it and gave thanks and he said this is the blood of the new covenant given in my name take this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me Father God I thank you that you've given us a way of to your grace, to your mercy, to your love, to your great gift on our behalf. 